well-known accounts in the scripture between uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace and Daniel and the lion's den, you know, stories that we uh, uh, remember from Sunday school when we were little. And uh, so uh, look at those familiar accounts, but uh, look at them maybe more deeply than we did in third grade Sunday school class. chapter 6, um, we'll read the text and then we'll, uh, we'll get into uh, uh, to seeking to understand the truth that is here for us. Daniel chapter 6 verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators, the satraps, the counselors, the advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions." Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open, toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, nor for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till going down to the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians, that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. 
Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No musicians were brought before him, also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, Daniel, has your God served you? Has the God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouth, the lion's mouth, so they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I've done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. And the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions. Them, their children, their wives, and the lions overpowered them, broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble and fear before the Lord God, before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So Judah had been, uh, has been uh, in exile for about 70 years. Babylon has been destroyed uh, and there was a new king in town. We talked last time that we were together about Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans being, being slain and Darius the Mede receiving the kingdom and so Babylon has been the nation that took Israel into captivity, Judah into captivity, has now fallen, and there is a new king, and yet deliverance still has not come. Babylon has been destroyed, the Medes and Persians have taken over, but Judah is still in exile. And maybe they had begun to wonder if they would in fact be delivered. Babylon had been destroyed, but by all appearances, all outward appearances, it wasn't destroyed by God, but it was destroyed by the Medes and the Persians. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe they should just make the best of it. There's a new king, a new kingdom. Maybe they ought to try to just get along. Maybe they should try to fit in. And, and, and when the law of the Medes and Persians conflicts with the law of God, Maybe they need to just obey the king in order to avoid punishment. Maybe with the fall of Babylon, the rise of the Medes and the Persians, they were tempted to uh, make an idol out of safety and security. Maybe they were tempted to love safety and security more than they loved God. They were tempted to disobey God in order to be safe and secure Maybe they were about ready to give up. And this event is recorded in the scripture to encourage them, to encourage them to keep trusting God. Trust that he is able to deliver you from certain death. Trust that he is uh, 
uh, able to save you even if it proves to be costly. So tr trust him no matter what. It's a, it's a similar theme to uh, Daniel chapter 3 where we saw that the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, uh, were committed to obey God even if it killed them. And so that's the encouragement. It's very, very similar uh, here. There's the same kind of dilemma. Do we obey the law of God or do we obey man and try to get along? But we'll see that there are some, some key differences. And so this letter, this event is recorded to encourage the people in exile to continue to be faithful to God, to continue to trust God, to obey him no matter what and not to compromise even though they are in a foreign land under a pagan king doesn't look like exile is going to come into an end and the king is, uh, is not working to rescue them. And uh, in this text, we actually see the government trying to play God. Uh, government is an institution that has been ordained by God uh, and therefore God's people have a duty, an obligation, a responsibility to to obey the government, to submit to government authority. Government was instituted by God in order to uh, create order, to reward those who do good or those who do good so that they might have a quiet and peaceable life and to punish evildoers. And so the government was ordained by God in order to, uh, to, to create an orderly society. And so we have a duty and an ops, an ob, a responsibility to submit to the government to obey the government when we obey the government we obey god because every authority that there is has been instituted by god but in this text we see the government trying to play god um, and by daniel's example we will see how to respond when the government moves outside of its god-given jurisdiction and tries to exert authority over all of life even over worship in this text, the king sets him up, himself up as the sole protector and provider. He makes a law that no one will petition any god or man for 30 days except for him. He sets himself up as God, the sole protector, the sole provider. Nobody can pray or petition or make supplications to any god or man except him. The king sets himself up as God. And so... This text helps us answer the question, what do we do? When government exceeds its authority, when government tries to play God, when government sets itself up as the sole protector and provider, when the government assumes roles that belong to God alone, or when the government uh, uh, demands allegiance that we owe to God alone, what should be our response? And this text is given to answer those questions, and also to encourage God's people in enemy territory to be faithful, to obey God no matter what, to offer allegiance to Him, to not make an idol out of safety and security, but to commit to obey God even if it kills you, even no matter what it costs. And so the answers come in this text. Let's look, uh, first of all, we see the structure of the government in the Medes and Persians. It was a three-layered bureaucracy. Uh, wh who was at the top of the bureaucracy? 
Darius the king. It's a monarchy ruled by one. And so at the top of this bureaucracy is Darius. And underneath him, he sets, uh, so you got the king. And underneath him, him, there are three governors. And who, uh, who is one of those governors? Daniel. And so underneath the three governors, there are 120 satraps. And so there's 40 satraps that answer to the three governors. And so we have this three-layered bureaucracy. Um, uh, and, and, you know, that's... Uh, uh, when we think about government, we have to know that government was instituted by God. Government is an institution that God has ordained. God has delegated authority to government. He has given specific jurisdiction to, to the government to, uh, to create an orderly society. And uh, because every single person, all, every single person is created in the image of God, but every single person is also utterly and completely and totally sinful and depraved, uh, the best system of government is a system of government that provides checks and balances. We don't want to concentrate the, the authority of the power into the hands of one person or into the hands of too few because of the sinful nature of humans. They're going to naturally pursue their self-interest. And so if all the power is in the hand of one person, that one person has the tendency, the temptation to use that power to serve himself. And so the government that governs best is a government that has a system of checks and balances uh, within it to ensure that power is not concentrated too heavily in the hands of one person. If one person, one sinful person has absolute power, chances are that one person will use power to his own benefit. And at first glance, you might say, well, this bureaucracy accomplishes that. There's one king, but there's three governors and 120 satraps underneath those governors. Uh, but when we read the text more closely, we see that maybe this is not designed in order to keep from concentrating the power into the hands of too few or into one person. Uh, first of all, the word satrap means protector of the kingdom. So the satrap is not there to protect the people, to protect the individual liberties, to protect the rights of the people. No, the satraps are there to protect the interest of the king. And even look at the text, verse 2. What is the purpose of this bureaucracy? So that the people will be served? No, what's the purpose of the bureaucracy? So, so that the king will not suffer any loss. So really, this is probably the IRS making sure that, uh, that everybody is paying their dues, paying their taxes. And so this is not a bureaucracy set to preserve individual freedoms or keep the power from being concentrated in the hands of too few, which we'll see in just a moment. It is actually a bureaucracy that is there to protect the king and make sure that everyone, uh, everyone pays their due. And Daniel is one of the three governors. And Daniel is probably in his 80s at this point. He was a young man, a teenager, when uh, Babylon took him into captivity. And now 70 years have passed, so Daniel is in his 80s. And as we saw in chapter 5, he had probably kind of gone into retirement. He had gone into uh, obscurity during the reign of Belshazzar until the queen mother uh, brought him out of retirement to interpret the writing on the wall in chapter 5. And, uh, Daniel, and then when the 
Belshazzar died that night, Darius took over, and Daniel was given a high position in the government. Um, uh, and, and how did Daniel preserve his, per, perform his duties in that, in, that, uh, uh, in that role? How did he perform his duties as a governor? Yes, he distinguished himself because there was an excellent spirit within him. And there was no accusation that could be found against him. Uh, he was a person of integrity. He was faithful to the king. No charge or fault or error could be found in him because an excellent spirit was within him. And, th and this is a theme running throughout the book of Daniel that uh, even though they are in enemy territory, even though they are ruled by a pagan king, uh, you're surrounded by pagan influences and propaganda, uh, God is protecting and even advancing his people. His people are doing well because God is giving them wisdom and an excellent spirit. And we, we have to be careful, remember, when we interpret Daniel that we don't see Daniel as the hero. We see that God is the hero and Daniel is being used by God, put in the positions by God, given wisdom by God, given an excellent spirit by God for God's purpose. Uh, Daniel's not the hero of the story. God is because God grants the wisdom and spirit necessary for Daniel, for his people, not only to survive, but to thrive in enemy territory. And so, uh, so Daniel is one of the governors, and uh, he is uh, doing well. And the king now is thinking of setting him over the whole realm, giving him a promotion and making these other governors and the other satraps answer to him. And so uh, what, is the, what is the result of Daniel's excellent service and the possibility of his promotion? What does it produce in the other uh, rulers? They're jealous. There's jealousy. So... The second thing we see in this text is we see that the other bureaucrats were jealous of Daniel and felt threatened by him. Mediocre people hate high achievers. And when God blesses with wisdom and an excellent spirit, that can cause jealousy among the others. And so verse 4, the, other, the, the governors, the satraps, sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. They didn't want to be subordinated to him. They didn't want him to be promoted. They didn't want him to have authority over them. And so they looked for something to accuse him of, some kind of charge that they could find, that they could level against him. But they could find nothing. He was a person of integrity. He was faithful to God. He was faithful to the king. They looked, but they could not find any corruption. They couldn't find any negligence. They couldn't find anything that he had done, any failure that he had made. There was nothing for which they could accuse him, and they came to the conclusion that the only way that we will find a charge against Daniel is if we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Verse 5, these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of of God. And so the only way they would be able to accuse him was to create the, the conditions where Daniel was forced to choose between loyalty to God and loyalty to the king and his laws. The only vulnerability in Daniel 
would be his faithfulness to God, his worship of God. And so they had to set up these conditions where he could not be faithful to God and to the king and his law at the same time. And that's exactly what they did. So these governors, these satraps, verse 6, these governors, these satraps thronged before the king. <laughs> they go into the king and they flatter the king, King Darius, King, king Darius, live forever. Notice what they say, verse 7. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors, the advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute to make a form decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Number one, is that true? All the governors are in agreement? What about Daniel? Yeah, Daniel not consulted. So, uh, so they come in and they immediately they speak an untruth. Um, uh, Daniel had not been consulted probably, uh, obviously. And, uh, and, and it's also likely that... Uh, you know, there were, there were 120 subordinate satraps, you know, very unlikely that they really consulted them all. They got together in this conspiracy and uh, made it sound more lofty, lofty than it really was. And, and so they, they began with an untruth, and then they appealed to the king's pride. For 30 days, he would be God. For 30 days, he would be the sole mediator between the gods and men. Nobody's, nobody is permitted to, to make supplication, to make any request of anyone except the king. Basically, uh, for 30 days, he would be the sole protector, the sole provider, the sole object of allegiance and dedication to everyone in the kingdom. And, uh, and as a, a new king... Just kind of coming in and establishing his rule. You know, this kind of makes sense. It's a way to unify the country. We've got all of these different people. We've got this, this melting pot of people. All these people that we have conquered. All these people that Babylon conquered and brought here. And all these different nations with all these different places. With all these different cultures and all these different gods. One of the ways that we can unite these people and bring all these different people together is with one religion. And, and, and demand that everybody give all of their allegiance to Darius. And so this is a way uh, the king could see to unify the, the kingdom, to solidify his, his rule, and to, uh, uh, and to also serve as a test of loyalty. This would be a, a test of loyalty and give him, the new king, an opportunity to eliminate anyone who would be disloyal to him, who would not show the proper allegiance to him. And so, uh, so it, it, it kind of makes sense. We're going to unify the people. They appeal to his pride. And, uh, uh, and the king is convinced. And he signs the decree in writing in a way that cannot be changed according to the law of Medes and Persians. And so he signed the written decree. And it was a law that directly contradicted the law of God. The king had, in effect, set himself up as God. He was to be the only person that people could petition for anything, for provision, for protection, for anything. He was demanding allegiance that is due to God alone. And God had commanded that there would be no other gods before him, 
He is the source of life, breath, safety, and security. He is the source of daily bread. And, uh, uh, and Darius set himself up as God. He uh, tried to play God. And Daniel, Daniel's enemies, or you know, those that were jealous of him, accomplished their task. Daniel was put in a place where he could not be faithful to both God and the king. If he obeyed the king, he would be forced to disobey God. And so, what does Daniel do? Daniel responds with defiance. Daniel responds with defiance. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, so he knew the law, he knew what was required, he knew the penalty... Anyone who petitions any god or man for 30 days, except Darius, shall be cast in the den of lions. He knew the law. He knew the penalty. He knew the consequence. What did he do? He went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. And so Daniel went to his house and openly defied the decree of the king. As we read this, you know, we might be tempted to say, why did Daniel do this? He knew the decree. He knew the penalty. He knew the consequences of his action. He knew that God had instituted the state, that God removes kings and raises kings up. Darius was... Uh, king because God had decreed it. God had established uh, the kingdom of Darius. He had used the Medes and Persians to, uh, to conquer them. Uh, he, he told Belshazzar that, you know, that God has, God, God, and he told Nebuchadnezzar, God raises up kings and he removes kings. And so Darius is there because God put him there. God gave him the authority. God delegated that authority to him. And, 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 and since The government is instituted by God. God's people are commanded to submit to the government, to obey the ordinances of man, to submit to those ordinances. And so Daniel could say, well, you know, and 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 it's just 30 days. It's just a short-term thing. After 30 days, I can go back to my regular practice, my regular habit, my my, my regular time, you know, so... So uh, I just need to line up under this authority, but that's not what Daniel does. The other thing he could do, he could go to his house. He could go into his closet and close his door and pray. In fact, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't Jesus tell us to go? He says, when you say your prayers, don't do it in a way that can be seen by men. Don't do it in a way that is open, but go into your closet and after you shut the door, then pray to your father in secret and your father who sees you in secret will, uh, will reward you openly. And so Daniel could have just gone to his room, closed the door, gone into his closet and continued to pray to violate the command, but in a way that he wouldn't be caught or wait till it's dark where somebody couldn't see him. Was there a way? That Daniel could obey both God and man in a way that was secret or undercover? Could he go underground and, and, uh, and pray? And, and also notice, you know, he, he doesn't just do it one time. He does it three times. 
morning, noon, and night. He prayed. And so he, he can't even say, well, oh, you know, I just got home. I forgot about the law. I, I, no, it's open defiance. He is defiant. He opens, <laughs> he opens his windows. He turns toward Jerusalem. He bends down on his knees, and he prays and gives thanks to God just as he had always done, just as he had done from his early days. Daniel chooses public defiance. He doesn't just say, well, it's just 30 days. I'm going to go along and get along. He doesn't say, well, I can do both. I'll, I'll go underground. I'll pray in dark and, and behind my room. No, he chooses public defiance. And the question is why? Why does he choose this particular course of action? Well, number one, prayer toward Jerusalem was a testimony to faith in God's promise to deliver his people from exile, from the hand of the pagan king and from the distant lands and out of enemy territory. When, when Solomon de dedicated the temple way back in 1 Kings chapter 8, he dedicates the temple. He says in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 16, uh, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them, and you delivered them to the enemy and take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they are carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we've committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive. In verse, this is 1 Kings 8, 48, and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, the temple which I have built for your name. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. Forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they transgressed against you and grant them compassions before those who took them captive that they may have compassion on them, for they are your people, your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you. And so facing Jerusalem and crying out to God is a testimony to God's promise to hear and to deliver his people. And so for Daniel, his public prayer was a public testimony that God would deliver his people. Seventy years had passed, Babylon had been destroyed, but God is faithful. And Daniel, just as he'd been doing for 70 years, turned toward Jerusalem and prayed in accordance with God's promise uh, Solomon's petition in 1 Kings chapter 8. And so for Daniel, his public prayer is a public testimony that the glory of God, the faithfulness of God, is, is greater than the glory of Darius. And the instructions that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount was a warning against public prayer, seeking praise for the discipline of prayer. Praying so that you might be seen by men and heard by men and they think how spiritual you are. And so that Jesus is not really addressing the same 
thing that Daniel is doing. Daniel is, is not seeking recognition for his prayer, but he is proclaiming the glory of God, the faithfulness of God, the promise of God, his acknowledgement that God, even in a, in, a, in a pagan land, when they turn toward Jerusalem and pray, God will hear and he will forgive and he will restore his people. He will bring them out of the pagan land. He will deliver them from the pagan king. He will bring them out of enemy territory and return them to their homes. And so Daniel is professing his faith in God's promise. And he is proclaiming that the glory of God and that he fears God more than he fears man. And he is willing to put his life on the line in order to be obedient to God and to seek God alone. And so... uh, so prayer toward Jerusalem is a testimony to faith in God's promise. Number two, Daniel had a public reputation of being a man of prayer. His enemies knew this was the way to trap him. They knew that this was his practice. They knew that three times a day he would go to his room, he'd open his window, he would turn toward Jerusalem, he would get down on his knees before God, and he would pray. And they knew that this was the way to trap him. They couldn't find anything in the performance of his duties. They couldn't find any disloyalty. They couldn't find any negligence. They couldn't find any corruption. They knew that this was the way to trap him. And so they created this conundrum. His enemies knew this was the way. And if Daniel would have gone underground, God would still be God. If Daniel went underground, God would still be sovereign over Darius in the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. The only thing that would be different was the way that people viewed Daniel and his relationship with God, his trust in God. Daniel had a reputation of doing this, and if he changed his behavior because of their law, then they would see that Daniel valued his life more than he valued God. It was a test of his faith. They would see that Daniel was willing to compromise in order to have safety and security. Daniel had a reputation as a man who trusted God above all else and sought provision and protection from God alone. Daniel had a reputation as a man who feared God more than he feared man. Daniel had a reputation as a man who loved God more than he loved life himself, life itself. And all of that would be destroyed if Daniel went underground. And if he showed weakness, the attacks would not stop. They would only intensify. If Daniel went underground, he would still have his life. He wouldn't be thrown into the lion's den. He would still have his job. He would be the governor and maybe even be promoted. And he would also still have enemies. Going underground would not... It would deliver him out of the lion's den, but it would not deliver him from the enemies. And the enemies would know that, uh, uh, know his weakness, and know that he would compromise, and they would continue to attack. Yes, he would be saved from the lion's den, he would have his job, but he would also still have the enemies that would still be jealous of him, and now they would see weakness. And they would see an opportunity. Uh, He would not gain anything by compromising, but he would lose his faithfulness to God and his reputation as a man who loved God, feared God, served God, no matter what it cost him. 
He would not gain anything, but he would lose his integrity. And so Daniel didn't change anything. He did what was his practice from early days. He went home, opened his windows toward Jerusalem, and knelt down, showing his submission, his dependence upon God, his humility before God, three times a day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God. He demonstrated that his discipline of prayer was not just something he did when it was convenient or when it was safe. It wasn't just a show of piety. It was something that he saw to be more important than life itself. His obedience to God, his dependence upon God, his fear of God was more important to him than life itself. The enemy saw prayer as a weakness to be exploited when it was in fact Daniel's greatest strength. He was willing to seek after God and depend upon God for safety and security, for protection and provision, even if it killed him. And he knew the risk, but he continued to look toward Jerusalem because of his faith in God's faithfulness to his promises. He bowed down as a sign of reverence, dependence, submission, and he did it three times, uh, three times a day, just as he had always done. He gave thanks to God. He made supplication to God. He did not change anything. He did it according to his habit and according to his discipline. He did not alter his routine at all in response to the divine for the, the, the king's decree, the government decree. And uh, when we defy the government, we should expect that there will be consequences. The government bears the sword. And the sword has been given to the government by God. When we break the government's law, we should expect that there will be consequences. The government bears the sword. So, verse 11 these men assembled, found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the, the king's decree. Huh. Seems like, king, um, didn't, you, didn't you sign a decree that every man who petitions any God or man within 30 days except you will be cast into the den of lions? Didn't you write that law? The king said, yep, that's, way, that's, that's the law, that's the true. And, and according to the law of amazing persons, it can't be changed. Ah, so they answered. And said before the king that, that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, one of those Jews, he does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Verse 14, and when the king heard these words, he was greatly displeased with himself. Notice the irony here. They appeal to the king's pride to make himself the absolute authority to give him all power to be the only uh, protector and provider for all of the people. And so they, they trick him to sign this decree that is designed to give him all power and actually it robs him of his own freedom. <laughs> he is not free now to set Daniel free or to promote free. So he is greatly displeased with himself. He realizes, probably, that he had been deceived, that he had been tricked. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver 
him, but his own decree had robbed him of his freedom, his freedom of action, his right to do what he wanted to do. And so, uh, great irony. He wanted to consolidate his power, and he ended up putting himself in a position where he was powerless, and he was forced to do something that he did not want to do. And so they approached the king and said to the king, No, O king, it's the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes can be changed. So the king gave the command. They brought Daniel and cast him into the, lion, the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. And so Darius confesses that Daniel's God is the protector and the provider. And the stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the signets of his lords, and the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. And so it's sealed. Whatever happens to Daniel, no human can intervene. The king can't intervene. No human person can intervene. What happens to Daniel in the lion's den is up to God and up to God's sovereignty. And it's interesting During that night that Daniel is in lion's den, we don't see anything that's going on in lion's den. Lion's den's sealed. What we see is what's going on in the king's bedroom. (laughs) The the focus is not on Daniel, but it's on the king. And again, he wanted to consolidate his power, and he ended up making himself powerless. He wanted to, uh, uh, to unite the kingdom, and he ended up robbing himself of his own freedom. So verse 18, the king went to his palace, spent the night fasting, no musicians were brought before him. His sleep went from him, and he arose early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. And this is one of those places where we would like to know more. We would like to know what... Uh, What happened, all we need to know about how Daniel was delivered is in verse 22. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, so they have not hurt me. Because I was found innocent before him, and also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. All right, so the government has the sword, right? The government can judge us. Government can punish us for violating those laws. And if we disobey the law, even if it's because we're obeying God, we can expect the government to punish us. We're going to see Paul and Silas beaten. We saw them beaten. We'll see them in prison on Sunday. Government bears the sword. The government can judge us, but God can vindicate us. God will vindicate his people. And Daniel was shown to be innocent. Uh, uh, he, says, uh, he says in verse 22, I was found innocent before him. Now he's not claiming sinless perfection, but in this uh, where he was accused, he was faithful to God, and he was also not disloyal to the king personally. He was not disloyal to the king. Even though he disobeyed his decree, he was disobeying an unlawful decree. The king's the king was unlawful. And when the law of the state contradicts the law of God, 
God's people can disobey with a clear conscience. Because the government also answers to God. God raises up kings. They are his servants. They are his ministers. And when we disobey an unlawful law, we can do that with a clear conscience and trust that God will vindicate his people and vindicate his law. Daniel had not been disloyal to the king, but he'd been, he had disobeyed an unlawful law, an unjust law. And he can do that with a clear conscience and trust that God will vindicate him. And the king was exceedingly glad and commanded they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, no injury whatever was found on him, because he believed in his God. And so now the king issues a new decree. Daniel had been sentenced. He had been thrown into the lion's den, but he had been vindicated, proven to be innocent, and so now he was cleared of all charges. And the king issues a new decree that has some good to it, but actually falls short of the full truth. Verse 24, the king gave the command. They brought these men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions. Them, their children, their wives, their lions overpowered them, broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. And so Daniel didn't survive because the lions weren't hungry. <laughs> Daniel survived because God shut the mouth of the lions and his accusers uh, received the penalty of which... Uh, which Daniel was sentenced for obeying the unjust law that they brought. And so we see, again, irony. What they wanted to happen to Daniel, in fact, happened to them. We see God overruling their evil designs. Then verse 25, King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. His dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And so he acknowledges that Daniel's God is the living God and he's active in the affairs of of uh, men and he actually goes beyond what Nebuchadnezzar had decreed at the end of chapter 3 when he brings Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego out of the fiery furnace Nebuchadnezzar decrees that no one can blaspheme this God no one can speak against him but notice Darius goes a step further and says that we must that all people must tremble and fear before the God of Israel he acknowledged that God is living, that he is eternal, that he has a kingdom that will not be destroyed. Uh, his dominion will endure to the end. He acknowledges that God rescues and delivers and that he works signs and wonders. He works miracles on the earth and he demonstrated that by delivering Daniel from the power of the lions. And so he may, has some truth in his declaration. He is the living God. He is powerful. He is active. He works Signs and wonders. He is a rescuing, miracle-working God. 
and an eternal God whose kingdom will last forever, and yet his decree actually falls short in two areas. Uh, number one, he does not forsake polytheism. He does not command that no one can worship any other gods. He simply says, we need to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, but he doesn't prohibit the worship of other gods, including his own self and his state. He does not forsake polytheism, uh, multiple gods. He does not declare that the God of Daniel is the only God, the one true God, and forbid the worship of any other pagan gods. So he doesn't, doesn't go quite far enough. And then the other thing he does is uh, he does not recognize that you cannot command worship. You cannot command people to fear and tremble before God. That is a matter of the heart, uh, and uh, you cannot command worship. Uh, one of the reasons that we as Baptists believe in religious liberty, religious freedom, is you cannot, you, know, you cannot force people to worship. You can force them to go to church, you can force them to give your money, you can force them to go through the motions, to sing songs, to listen to sermons, but you can't make people fear and tremble before God. <laughs> that is not something that can be legislated. That is not something that be, can be commanded. The government cannot command and coerce the worship of God any more than it can command and coerce the worship of itself. And so the king, the king's decree, decree some true things, but his decree stop short of what is what is completely true and so uh, uh, but uh, and then verse 28 Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian and so again the theme God protecting and advancing his people even in pagan territory the the, the message of this event the reason this is here is so those people in exile will be encouraged to obey God, to be faithful to God, to trust God, to believe that he is going to deliver them, uh, and they need to obey him no matter what it costs. Don't give up. Don't try to fit in. Don't try to get by. Don't go underground. You be faithful to God, and you can trust him uh, to, uh, to protect his people. And you know, as you read through Daniel chapter 6, it's easy to see the parallels in the life of Jesus. There was a conspiracy against Daniel. There were people who were jealous of him. What happened to Jesus? There was a conspiracy. People were jealous of him. He was, uh, the people were coming after him, uh, following him. He raised Lazarus from the dead, and if they did not destroy Jesus, and they even tried to kill Lazarus again, then then the whole world would come after him. And so there was a conspiracy. And yet there was no basis for accusation. There was no basis to accuse Daniel, nor was there any basis to accuse Jesus. Pilate said, I find no charge against this man. He has done nothing wrong. The king tries to rescue Daniel. Pilate tries to rescue Jesus unsuccessfully. And even the seal, you know, the stone on the mouth of the den uh, remind us of the, the stone rolled in front of the tomb that Jesus was laid in and sealed with the authority of the Roman government, just as we see here. Um, but there is a significant difference. Daniel was protected from death this time, but he died later 
Jesus was not protected from death. Jesus was delivered over to death, but God raised him from the dead, and Jesus lives forever, never to die again. Jesus died and rose again. Jesus was vindicated, but vindicated after his death because of the plan and purpose of God to redeem his sinful people to himself. Uh, and so we, we do see parallels between this event in Daniel's life and in the life of Jesus, but we also see that uh, Jesus died and God vindicated him by raising him from the dead and giving him his reward, every single person for whom he died, those that he satisfied God's wrath for their sin. And so we do see parallels between this event in Daniel's life and, and the life of Jesus. But the lesson for us is that we should fear God. We, we, we can't be commanded by the government to tremble and fear before God, but we can fear and tremble before God because of our hearts recognizing God's sovereignty, God's power, God's dominion, God's might, God's glory. And we need to fear God. We need to obey God. We need to show allegiance to God. And when there's a conflict between our loyalty to our government, submission to our government, and our loyalty to God, we must obey God. We must obey God and not man. We must fear God and not man. And even if it will result in our death, knowing that the government has the sword and that disobedience has consequences, obey God. He is faithful. The government might be able to judge you, but God is able to vindicate you. The government might be able to destroy the body. We should not fear the one who can destroy the body, but the one who can not only destroy the body, but after that throw your soul into hell. Fear God. Obey Him. And acknowledge that there will be consequences to our disobedience. The government can judge us when we violate its laws. The government has the power of the sword. God will vindicate, maybe in this life, but certainly in the life to come. And the government is also under God's authority. And God will ultimately judge the government officials as well. And so uh, as we live in enemy territory, we are called to submit to the government. God has ordained governmental authority. He has given the state certain jurisdiction to maintain a decent and orderly society. And God created humans in his own image. But they fell into sin and by nature have become selfish and self-serving. And so God has ordained the state to make and enforce laws that enable sinful people to live together without consuming each other. God has ordained the state so that those who obey its laws might live quiet and peaceable lives. And God has ordained the state that those who do evil might be punished. The government's been ordained by God, and, and so therefore, though, the government is uh, accountable to God, answers to God, must govern according to the natural laws of God. 
Because God the creator, God the ultimate lawgiver, is the one who ultimately determines what good and evil is. And so government was ordained by God to punish what God has said is evil and to protect what God has said is good. But government ruled by sinful people. And it does not always define evil the way God defines evil. It does not always define good the way that God defines good. And so the government is made up of sinners that does not always do what God has uh, what God has defined as right and good. And sometimes there can be a conflict because the government does not always call evil what God calls evil, does not always call good what God calls good. Sometimes there will be a conflict. And when that conflict comes, we must obey God and not men. And know that there will be consequences. You violate the government's law, the government has a sword. It's got the fiery furnace. It's got the lion's den. There will be consequences to disobedience. But we can trust God to vindicate his people. Maybe in this life, but certainly in the life to come. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we read about people who have faith who subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, Hebrews 11.33, quenched the violence of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the armies of aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again. There are some people of faith that God vindicated in this life. He stopped the mouths of lions. But there were also some who were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having providing something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And so in this case, God stopped the mounts of lions, but that's not always the case. Sometimes what is most glorified for God is for his people to be sawn in two. But we do that, that we might obtain a better resurrection. And so the commitment for us is obey God. When you can, submit to the government. But when you're put in that conflict, obey God. Trust Him. Even if it kills you, so that you might obtain a better resurrection. And that uh, be faithful, even unto death. And just as God vindicated Jesus, He will vindicate all those who believe in Him. Who have been born again by God's grace through their faith in Jesus, and who overcome and persevere and believe until the very end. So uh, what do we do when the government tries to play God? Defiance. Obedience to God. Defiance of the state. Accepting the consequences. Trusting that God will vindicate his people.
All right, questions about that? All right. Well, that uh, Daniel's kind of divided into two halves. The first half is narrative. And then the second half is uh, a record of visions that goes back in time to the first year of Belshazzar who died in chapter, at the end of chapter 5. And so we'll go and look at some, uh, some of the visions in the second half of the book of Daniel. The narrative's kind of done. And uh, now we will see uh, a record of several visions that Daniel has and interprets for us. All right, let's pray together. Lord God, we're thankful for your word, Lord, and we're thankful for your plan and your providence. And Lord, we're thankful that you rule in the affairs of men, that you raise up kings, you remove kings, that you have ordained government. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be wise and to be discerning as our government becomes increasingly hostile to you and to your word, to your truth, to your standards, to your natural law. Lord, help, first of all, help us not to be robbed of our joy. The joy of our salvation, our rest in you. Lord, as we live in enemy territory, help us to look toward the mountain from whence our hope comes. And help us to look to you, knowing that you are faithful, that you will rescue, that you will deliver And help us to look to the hill from whence comes our help. Lord, help us not to make an idol out of security and safety. Help us not to seek to do that which is going to make us most comfortable if it means disobeying you. Help us to look to you for our protection and our provision and not the state. And help us not to value safety and security and comfort to the extent that we're willing to disobey you to achieve it. And Lord, if the time comes where we are forced to choose, where we're put in a place where we must choose between loyalty to you or loyalty to the state. Grant us the courage, the wisdom, the excellent spirit that you granted to Daniel that we might stand and that we might be found faithful and that we might trust and we might say, I will obey God even if it kills me, knowing that you will vindicate your people either in this life but certainly in the life to come. Grant us that comfort and assurance to help us to be wise and discerning and to know when it's right to defy and to do it with courage and to do it that you might be glorified and that you might be honored. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.